you have your Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, as we begin, as we continue working our way through this third book of the inspired, inerrant Word of God, this morning we begin with verse 8 of chapter 6, and we'll continue all the way through chapter 7. This is another one of those extended passages that, in this case, it's too long even to print on both sides of an insert. So we will read it and strive by God's grace to learn from it. But before we do, some things to think about. My mentor, or one of my, I should say, one of my mentors in the Christian life, Mike McGill, one of his favorite phrases that I remember him using as our Sunday school class was working through the book of Acts and he would regularly review. One of his favorite phrases was, repetition is the mother of all learning. You may have heard that phrase before. And as we read Leviticus 6 and 7, remember, repetition is the mother of all learning. I say that because what we're going to read about today, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you're going to say, wait a second, we've heard about that before. Wait, we've read about that already. Wait, we read about that one too. We come to a section in Leviticus that goes back through all of the sacrifices that we have talked about up to this point, but it does so in a different way. So as we read Leviticus 6, 8 through the end of chapter 7, listen for things that sound familiar to what you've heard in the past, offerings name, offering names that ring a bell. But listen for differences. How is this section of Scripture different from what we've read about with the other offerings over the past handful of weeks? Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it shall, 
the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations, from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy." The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten." The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the courts of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar, and all its fat shall be offered. The fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings, and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. 
But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers a sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity." Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people." The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, you shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat. The fat of an animal that dies of itself and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offerings to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings from the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord. The Lord commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. A lot of words, a lot of familiar words, a lot of uncertain, confusing, curious words and commands. What are we to take from all of these instructions that God is giving to Aaron and his sons and the people through Moses? Well, there's probably a lot that we can gain from these two chapters. Not probably, there is. And probably many of your questions this morning, just because of time constraints, will be left unanswered. Some of you have questions about some of these offerings because you haven't been with us. And I'd encourage you to consider going back and listening to previous sermons from the series available on our website that walk through the offerings 
from Leviticus chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 6. So we're not going to review all of those. But what can we learn? I want to suggest that these chapters are suggestive. These two chapters are suggestive for how we, that is, we, us who are gathered here today, are to lead worship in holiness. In order to see this, how we, not me, not the people who were up here on stage earlier, but how we, followers of Christ, are to lead worship in holiness, there are three things for us to draw out from this passage and others related to it. First is the centrality of sacrifice. The centrality of sacrifice. Second is the supreme priest and sacrifice. The supreme priest and sacrifice. And then thirdly, leading worship in holiness. How is it that we can, in light of this passage and what it points us to, lead worship in holiness? First, the centrality of sacrifice. This passage drips with the idea that sacrifice is essential is central in the worship of the one true and living holy of holies God. One way this passage tells us that sacrifice is central is by what it does in going back through all of the sacrifices that have already been mentioned. It highlights their importance because it says all that needs to be said about these sacrifices has not yet been said. Chapters 1 through 5 largely, not exclusively, but largely focus on the one who would offer the sacrifices, the worshiper, and the sacrifice that he was to offer. But now... The Lord, to whom are these commands largely given? Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command Aaron and his sons. These are instructions for the priests. Because they had a central role to play in these sacrifices. And so God is essentially saying these sacrifices are so important and so central to what it is for my people to worship me at this time that not only do you need all of those instructions that I've already given to you about each of the offerings, but now I need to tell the priests and the rest of the congregation, some additional details about these critical sacrifices. The order of these sacrifices suggests the centrality of the entire sacrificial system in the worship of Israel. So not only the repetition, but even the order of these sacrifices And I'm not going to dwell long here. If you have questions, we can talk more about this after the service or this week. But the order that the sacrifices are given in seems to prioritize the ones that are given most often down to the ones that were given least often 
and concluding with the one that was largely entirely voluntary. Here's what I mean. Where does this section begin? What offering does it begin with? Command Aaron and his son saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. This was the most common of all the offerings. It was offered every morning. It was offered every evening. You can read Numbers 28, verses 3 through 8. And then God goes on to talk about the grain offering, which was given with the burnt offering and at other times. The sin or the purification offering required on certain occasions of sin, required when things were set apart for worship of God, required at times of certain uncleanness just in the normal course of life. The guilt offering required, as we saw last week, at times of occasion of specific sin. And then the peace offering, most commonly or most often a completely voluntary offering. God highlights the most important and most central and then works his way through the rest of the offering. The order in which God presents the offering here and the directions to the priests points to their centrality. But the details. The details of all of these offerings. And this is where we're really going to have to go fast because there are a whole lot of details that you just heard. And we're not going to talk about all of the details that are there, but I want to highlight a few of the details that really do, I think, point us to the fact that this whole sacrificial system was central to the life and worship of Israel. Notice what the Lord says about the fire that was to consume the sacrifices. Notice in chapter 6, verse 9, "...the burnt offering shall be on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it." All night long, the fire was to continue to burn. But more than that, Notice verse 12, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. The fire was to continue day and night never being extinguished because the sacrifices that were offered on the altar were of central value and had a central role to play in the life and worship of Old Testament Israel. Therefore, the fire that was to consume them was to always be burning, always ready, as it were, for a sacrifice to be altered. Now, there are questions about why. Why was that fire always altered? Perhaps it was or always to be burning there on the altar. Perhaps it was a sign of the perpetual need for forgiveness and atonement on the part of the people. And that, that altar ready to receive the offering shouted, you need ongoing forgiveness. Your sins need to continue to be addressed and the fire is ready. It also could be 
that the fire perpetually burning on the altar reminded the people of the promise of God's presence with them continually. The one who never slumbers or sleeps, the fire on his altar continued to burn. There's probably something of both of these in the perpetual fire. But the point for us to see is that as that fire burned, it shouted to the people, God is with you and you need your sins to be addressed by Him. This detail shouts to the centrality of sacrifice. But not just that detail. Did you notice the language about clothing? Listen again to verse 10, and I promise we're not going this slowly through the entire two chapters. But notice what God commands in verse 10. The priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, outer and inward clothing, apparent and hidden clothing, specially required for this process. Put these on, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has been reduced from the burnt offering on the altar, and shall put them beside the altar. So he puts on these special clothes, and he goes to remove the sacrifice and its ashes that have been burning all over the evening. And then what happens? Then he shall take off his garments. That was the only purpose of these clothes that he put on, was so that he could go remove the sacrifice. He had special clothes to remove the sacrifice and its ashes that had been burning all night long. This points to the centrality, the importance of all of these activities. Because even for this seemingly minutest task of removing the ashes, the priest had to wear special clothes for the task. But all of the food details that are addressed, we're we're not going to read those. You heard many of those. You can go back and read them. What they were to eat and what they were not to eat had implications that stemmed from the sacrificial system. Who could eat what? Where they could eat it? When they could eat it? How long they could eat it? All flowed from this central group of activities, the sacrificial system. The cooking supplies that were used in processing the sin and the guilt and the peace offerings. Notice in verse 28 of chapter 6, The earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it's boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Clothing, food, the cooking supplies, but even life itself was influenced by this sacrificial system. Did you hear, back on over now, chapter 7, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Verse 25, Every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. 
Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, excuse me, shall eat no blood, whatever, whether of fowl or of animal in any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Though we can't be 100% certain, there is a very strong likelihood that the warning here is that those who violated these commandments about eating in their state of cleanliness and the eating of the fat and the blood, that if they transgressed these laws, the potential penalty was death by the hand of God Himself. That's how important this sacrificial system was to the life of this people. If they violated these commands, the threat was death. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks, that it's realized for two of Aaron's sons. The centrality of the sacrificial system is shown in all of these details, in the repetition, in the order, though it's not addressed here, the arrangement of the Hebrew camp as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land shouted to the people that this sacrificial system was central to their identity. Because you know where the tabernacle and its furniture were set up? In the center of the camp. They were all around it. This was at the center of their life. And we see in the Scriptures two competing visions of the centrality of the sacrifice that I think highlight for us just how utterly important this whole sacrificial system is as God describes it for the people, describes it for the priests. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1 to reinforce just the utter central nature of the offering of these sacrifices. We have juxtaposed, set aside one another, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2, a beautiful picture of devotion and submission to the Lord and a horrible picture of rebellion against Him. We have a family led by a Hebrew by the name of Elkanah who was devoted to the Lord, worshipped, went up to offer sacrifices every year we read in chapter 3. And many of you know the story of Elkanah and his two wives, and specifically his wife Hannah and her barrenness, and how she longed for a son. And she promised that if the Lord would grant her a son, she would devote it she would devote, not it, devote him, the son, to the service of the Lord for the remainder of his days. And God hears her cry and blesses her with a child. And in response, notice down in chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, the man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer 
to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And here's the punctuation. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, or possibly three bulls, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. In her devotion, in her dedication, she fulfills the vow that she had made to the Lord, and a part of that expression of gratitude and the completion of that vow was the offering of this bull or three bulls and the associated grain and drink offering. This is a beautiful picture of Hannah's recognition of the centrality of sacrifice in her devotion and worship to the Lord. That is in stark contrast to what we read in 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2, beginning in verse 12, the ESV translators helpfully add the section heading, Eli's worthless sons. The worthless sons of the chief priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. As we read these let the, let the words of Leviticus 6 and 7 ring in your ears and all of the detail and the attention that God gives and the instructions that He provides to the priests and how they are to, to approach and handle the offerings. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests of the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat to the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And it goes on and on and on. What a travesty. What a transgression against the commands that God had given to these priests who were to stand between the people and their holy God. People like Hannah and the priests were defiling the sacrifices that were central to the worship of the one true and living God. This is not what priests were supposed to be about. Particularly in the sacrificial system. But this points us, does it not? The centrality of the sacrificial system, the degrading words just are not strong enough to capture how awful this picture is of Eli's sons. Their utter trampling of this gift of God, it all points us to the supreme priest and sacrifice. Who is the supreme priest and sacrifice? It is a priest who was utterly unlike Eli's worthless sons. 
the supreme priest and sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, whom we read about in our Scripture reading earlier. We've been in our Scripture reading earlier in the service each time we're together. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, you may have noticed. Because over and over and over, the writer to the Hebrews points to the supremacy of Jesus. And here again this morning, we are reminded of how supreme a priest and how supreme a sacrifice the Lord Jesus Christ is. If you're here this morning and you don't know the supreme priest, the supreme sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ who has given Himself who was made a priest forever as we read earlier by His Father, appointed to a priesthood that will never pass away, He who always lives to intercede for His people, He who has given not an animal sacrifice, but has given Himself as the one perfect final atoning sacrifice for sinners like you and me. If you don't know this supreme priest and king, will you come to know him today? I would love to talk to you after the service about how you can be made right with God. God, It's no longer by offering fat on the altar, offering a bull, offering three bulls, offering a goat, offering the long lobe of the liver. It's not by that. It is by knowing, trusting, and following the Lord Jesus Christ. The supreme priest and sacrifice points us to the centrality of Jesus. Lottie Moon, Lottie Moon knew the centrality of Jesus. The offering that we take up this time of year Named the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. It's named after a young woman who gave her life in the late 19th and early 20th century to take the gospel of this supreme priest and sacrifice to a people who had never heard of him. Who was this Lottie Moon? Well, she was well educated. This is what one of her biographers writes about Miss Moon. As she attended a female institute, men's and women's education being segregated in the South at this time, in the 1850s, Lottie's own immediate course was to exhaust the possibilities at the female institute. Academically, she was at tops. Her Latin examinations were so stunning that her professor had them reviewed by the university's faculty. Professor Hart was so impressed by her moral philosophy exam that he wrote to John A. Broadus, first professor of preaching at Southern Seminary, to say it was the best he had ever seen. A professor later wrote that she never failed an exam and was usually first in the class. He never again heard a woman read Greek so fluently and appreciatively. He, pr he pronounced her the most scholarly of all the graduates. At school, she became proficient in Greek, Latin, Italian, French, and Spanish. I struggle with English. 
Although the standard course for the full degree was three years, she returned to a fourth. She and four other young women had put in so many extra studies that they were the first in the South to be awarded a Master of Arts degree. Lottie was one of these recipients. As Lottie closed this chapter in her life, John Broadus, who at one time also served as her pastor, was able to call her the most educated or cultured woman in the South. This is the woman for whom this offering is named. But Lottie's legacy is not in her outstanding education. Her legacy is in the fact that she knew King Jesus. And with all of the gifts that she had been given, she devoted her life, as God worked on her life over a period of 12 years, to lead her to the point where she left for China, knowing that when she left San Francisco Bay on the boat Costa Rica, she would never see her family back in Virginia again. She was going to China to die because of the supremacy of King Jesus. Her passion, Lottie's passion, when she set sail for China, she was 32 years old. She had turned down, this is from the IMB, she had turned down a marriage proposal and left her job. There's a story there. Home and family to follow God's lead. Her path wasn't typical for an educated woman from a wealthy southern family. God had gripped her with the Chinese people's need for a Savior. For 39 years, Lottie labored chiefly in Tengchao and Pingtu. People feared and rejected her, but she refused to leave. The aroma of fresh-baked cookies drew people to her house. She adopted traditional Chinese dress and she learned China's language and customs. Lottie didn't just serve the people of China, she identified with them. Many eventually accepted her and some accepted her Savior. And then another historian writes, her most conspicuous contributions, however, were her challenge to Southern Baptist women to form their own missionary organization for the support and promotion of foreign missions, and her admonition to young women to heed the call of China. Her constant stream of letters and articles appealing for more recruits and financial support prompted Southern Baptist women to initiate an annual Christmas offering for foreign missions in 1888, an offering later named for Moon, which grew from an an initial $3,000 in 1888 to more than $203 million in 2021-22. She had an impact on a variety of IMB policies. Her deep respect and belief in the ability of the Chinese people was in sharp contrast to the attitude of some of her colleagues. It is comparatively easy to give oneself to mission work, she once said, but it is not easy to give oneself to an alien people. The latter is much better and truer work than the former. What was her devotion? Lottie's devotion Disease, turmoil, and lack of co-workers threatened to undo her work, but she gave herself completely to God, helping lay the foundation of what would become the modern Chinese church, one of the fastest-growing Christian movements in the world. Lottie died at 72, ill and in declining health after decades ministering to her beloved Chinese, but her legacy lives on. And today, when gifts aren't growing as quickly as the number of workers God is calling to, her, to the field, 
Lottie's call for sacrificial giving rings with more urgency than ever. It rings with more urgency than ever because of the supremacy of the priest and the sacrifice who has given himself. Not just for sinners who have the fortunate opportunity to live in North America or in other places where access to the Gospel is relatively easy. But He has given Himself for a people from every tongue and every tribe and every language. So how is it that we are to lead in holiness, lead worship in holiness, friends? It's in this way. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I don't remember how long, when we began the sin offering, we focused on the sin offering for the high priest, and I briefly alluded to the fact that in Christ, we are all a kingdom of priests. But I, want, I don't want to just briefly allude to that now. Friends, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're not going to turn there. Note it down. You can read it today or sometime this week. But as you read 1 Peter 2, notice two things. Notice the language of how God in Christ has made us followers of Christ to be a kingdom of priests as the priests were to guide in the worship in holiness, offering the sacrifices, we as a kingdom of priests are to lead in worship in holiness by declaring to people who do not know Christ by both our lips and our lives, there is nothing greater than knowing Christ. There is nothing greater than giving one's life to submit to and follow Christ. We lead in worship in holiness by not being like Eli's worthless sons profaning the Word of God. We lead by worship in holiness by submitting ourselves to God's call on us to be an obedient, holy people. One of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that we can do that is by continually giving our lives, our energies, to the work of the Gospel around the world. One of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that we can lead in worship in holiness is in what we say. Is... What we say consistent with the fact that we believe that our hope ultimately is in Christ? Or do our words and do our lives betray that our ultimate hope in this life is in political leaders or other systems? Friends, let us not trust in chariots, but let us trust in the name of the Lord our God. And let that be reflected in the priorities of our lives and the words that we use and the things that we talk about. But not only the things that we talk about to one another and to our neighbors, but the things that we talk about to God Himself in our praying 
We can lead in worship and holiness in how we go to the Lord in prayer. And specifically, I have in mind how it is that we pray for the advance of the gospel around the world. And it's laid up on a tee for us to hit a 300-yard drive down the center of the fairway this week. We don't have to go figuring it out. How can we pray for missions? Well, how might we go about praying for the work of the gospel around the world this week? I didn't bring it with me, but it's that prayer guide that we used earlier. Use that prayer guide this week. But not just in the subject of our conversations, not just in what we pray, but how we view the financial resources, the material resources that God has blessed us with, do we view God's blessing to us as an intended vehicle to see the gospel taken to the ends of the earth? Or are the material blessings that God has given to us ours to use to make our lives comfortable so long as we live to the end of our days? And for many of you, I'm preaching to the choir. Because you think seriously about how can I use what God has given me for the work of the gospel. But I think here of two passages of Scripture. I will reference them. You can read them earlier, and then we will be done. 67. 3 says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. What a glorious prayer to make our prayer this week. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. But do you know what the two verses prior to Psalm 67 3? We want the nations to praise you, O God. Psalm 67 1 May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. God, would you bless us so that we can live comfortable lives to the end of our days? That's not the prayer of the psalmist. God, would you bless us so that your name would be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. Ephesians 4, God, Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him work. And do you know why? He should work so that he may be able to give to those in need. Friends, there is a world in desperate need of Christ. For some of you this morning, some of you are in a place where You're like Lottie was in the midst of an education, just recently finished up an education, thinking about what education in the future will look like. What will the trajectory of your life be? Perhaps for you, maybe not. Maybe God's intention for you is to live somewhere here in the United States and be a part of a local church, and be an active part of missions and evangelism through your local church. But perhaps, for some of you, God intends to use you the way that He used Lottie. 
to take the great news of the supreme sacrifice and priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, to a people who right now have little or no access to the good news of God's saving grace in Christ. It is not. Let me rephrase that. Did Lottie waste the years devoted in education? Did Lottie waste her Masters of Arts by going to a people whose language she didn't know had to learn? Did she waste her education, her well-positioned life? Absolutely not. And if you give your life to the work of the Gospel, friend, your life will not be wasted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before You this morning, help us. Help us, we pray, O Father, to be those who by our lips and by our lives lead others to worship You in holiness by leading them to the supreme priest and sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may the person of Jesus Christ, may the work of Jesus Christ, may the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death for sinners like us and the glorious news of His resurrection. Father, may He and the Word about Him increasingly occupy a central role in our lives individually and collectively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.